Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional and international headlines. I speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. Saudi Arabia has continued to send urgent aid to Palestinians trapped in Gaza, with millions at risk of starvation after a month and a half of Israeli bombardment. The King Salman Humanitarian Aid and Relief Centre, or KS Relief, has sent more than 22 relief flights so far, carrying food, urgent medical supplies and shelter to the one and a half million people displaced by the ordeal. On this episode of Frankly Speaking, we hear from Abdullah bin Abdulaziz Al-Rabiya, the Secretary General of KS Relief, to ask what conditions are like on the ground, whether the war in Gaza impacts their resources in other conflict zones, and concerns about the safety of KS Relief staff following repeated Israeli attacks on Gazan hospitals, schools and aid agencies. Dr. Al-Rabiya, thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, KS Relief has sent more than 22 flights with urgent relief supplies to Arish International Airport and at least two shipments to Port Said for the people of beleaguered Gaza. Now, many countries have also followed suit, but frankly speaking, given the sheer destruction that Gaza has endured and the delay on the part of the Israelis to allow any aid in, is it too late to help the Gazans? Just how bad is the situation on the ground? Well, uh, first of all, I'm really happy to be with you. To, uh, and uh, uh, starting with the latter part of your question, uh, the situation in Gaza is uh, extremely dire, actually. And the humanitarian crises are huge and tremendous. And the needs are outstanding. Uh, and uh, uh, to answer your first part of the question, uh, it is never too late, uh, but uh, the more we do, the more we put the pressure to open the corridors, the more we actually ensure that we reach those who are in need, uh, the bigger chance to save lives. We're talking now about lives of children, lives of women, lives of elderly people. So uh, we have to do what we can from all directions to ensure that we reach those in a timely uh, and, and a quick time. Okay, so you say it is never too late. Of course, there's lots of talks going on behind the scenes. I have to wonder, is there a limit to the number of flights or shipments that's planned for the delivery of this emergency aid, or does it only depend on the humanitarian situation that's on the ground? How, how do you decide how much aid goes to Gaza, particularly given the fact that Chaos Relief is active in helping many different other areas in need? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, our actually needs assessment is based on, on uh, the uh, uh, assessment based on the ground. We are in a direct communication with the uh, Palestine uh, Red Crescent. We are also communicating with the UNRWA and also other UN agencies. And uh, there is no limit uh, uh, as of today to how much we sent. Uh, our teams are actually also negotiating with the players 
uh, on the ground and also the partners who are delivering the aid to ensure that there will be no duplication and also there is a good coordination. Uh, uh, there are meetings happening both in Egypt and Jordan that we are part of the uh, coordinating teams to ensure that we will continue to supply the needs based on priorities and based also on the high needs. The other question that we have teams also in Arish who are located there to coordinate with the uh, UN agencies, international agencies, regional agencies such as Egyptian Red Crescent and also uh, Palestine Red Crescent. And the planes are continuing uh, from Riyadh to Al-Arish on a daily basis. And uh, also the ships are continuing. We have plans to keep those ships going on and the planes are going on to ensure that we have enough supplies uh, close to the corridors uh, in order to access as quickly as we can. Okay, and I want to ask you about your work with the Egyptian authorities in just a moment. But first, lots of talks going on behind the scenes on the ground, you say. Have you noticed that Israel is trying to limit uh, the number or the amount of aid that is actually going through Gaza's borders at the moment? What kind of numbers are we talking about? What have you seen so far? And if they are trying to limit or cap the amount of aid going through, how do you try and overcome those challenges? Well, Kate, the situation is, is challenging. Uh, uh, personally, I have been in, in Rafah and Al-Arish, and I have seen uh, the Rafah corridor myself, and uh, the challenges are, are huge, uh, starting about the obstacles that the trucks have to go through. They have to go uh, more than 50 kilometers to uh, be uh, examined and cleared by the Israeli forces and then coming back 50 kilometers. Uh, and, uh, and also the assessment takes days uh, in order to uh, clear each uh, track. And then they have to go through the Rafah corridor. This by itself is uh, a significant challenge uh, uh, and it's delaying uh, the aid for those who are in extreme needs. The second, also the number of trucks that are allowed uh, many trucks that have been kept for days to, to be cleared, and even ambulances. We have more than 20 ambulances uh, sitting at Rafah uh, corridor now for over uh, days and hoping that they, those will be cleared and uh, allowed to enter Rafah. Uh, as far as I know, that uh, during actually uh, the, the periodics of ups and downs, the trucks that are allowed to enter between 50 to 140. And as you know, Kate, and as I know, that uh, the needs are far beyond those numbers uh, from the UN itself. Uh, we have heard from the under secretary, a minimum of 400 trucks a day is the bare minimum to allow life to go in, in, in Gaza. Okay, so let me ask you about that because you say that Israel is causing big delays when it comes to being able to receive and access that aid. I have to ask how much aid is potentially going to go to waste? Again, we're talking about food. We're talking about urgent medical supplies. So with these delays, there comes food waste, but also how many lives are at risk? When we're talking about tens of thousands of people who haven't been injured, how many livelihoods are at risk with these kinds of delays? Delays. Well, we know that there are thousands of people. Uh, if we talk about children, uh, and we know over over 
hundreds of thousands of people have moved from the north to the south. And uh, I would say easily half of them are uh, children. Uh, we have also women who are at risk, pregnant women who are at risk. We have elderly people who are at risk. We have, as you mentioned, civilians who have been injured and they need to be also uh, treated and, and also their injuries have to be secured so that they don't get infected and they don't die. We're talking about life by the minute. So any delay means, as far as, as I'm concerned, uh, as a doctor, means a risk of death. So uh, we have to gain every minute, we have to gain every hour, and we have to allow as many uh, trucks that are carrying nutrition for children, food for adults, and also medications that will maintain life, and we should not forget the food. Okay, so you say countless lives are being put at risk because of these Israeli delays. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of your work on the ground because you recently finalised four joint cooperation agreements with a number of international organisations to provide relief worth 150 million Saudi riyals. That's about 40 million US for the Palestinians who are trapped in Gaza. What is that money mainly spent on and what roles are the international organisations playing? Where exactly do they come into the picture in the land, sea and air relief bridge that, that Saudi Arabia has proposed? Well, Kate, our aid is, is uh, as you rightly mentioned, it's uh, uh, through many uh, ways. Number is the bilateral, which is being carried by uh, the air bridge and the, by the sea bridge and thereby being carried by the uh, hundreds of trucks uh, to Rafah corridor. But that's not enough and we know that's not enough. So we have signed four uh, agreements with uh, uh, UNRWA, uh, WFP, WHO and uh, ICRC, uh, hoping that those uh, diverse uh, UN and international agencies will be able to use the money for uh, urgently to uh, first of all feed people feed children save lives and ensure that the bare minimum medical services are being provided some of the uh, uh, agencies have requested in addition to the money also in-kind donations uh, we had meetings with them and they have sent their priorities and those priorities are being now uh, delivered to Rafah Corridor to ensure that uh, those agencies will receive in-kind donations based on their priorities to ensure that will couple also the funding that they have received. And our aim is one, is to ensure that those who are in dire need will receive it quickly and as quickly as we can, whether through us directly or through our also uh, uh, UN and international partners. And of course, with more than one and a half million people who've been displaced in Gaza, this aid is so urgent. Now, you've also signed a memorandum of joint cooperation with the Egyptian Red Crescent Society to provide important logistical support and deliver humanitarian aid to Gaza. Uh, how helpful were the Egyptian authorities and the organisations in helping to facilitate your work? Well, Kate, I have to say this uh, uh, openly and frankly, that the Egyptian authorities have been uh, very cooperative, uh, they have been instrumental to our work, and they have helped us a lot, uh, either at the port of Arish, or at also the seaport of uh, Bursaid, or also 
the Egyptian Red Crescent in the transport from those locations to uh, uh, Rafah uh, corridor. Uh, and based on that, and when I visited uh, actually Arish and, and, and Rafah, I have seen, Kate, the amount of logistics burden that uh, the Egyptian Red Crescent has. And we had a meeting uh, with them and, and we were actually happy to sign uh, a memorandum of understanding to support them what, with what we can to ensure that they will have the both the technical, the equipment, and also the manpower capacity that will also couple their work so that they will be able to, to deliver in a much more speedy way. So clearly a successful visit there to, uh, to Arish. I know you were visiting the Centre for Logistics Services of the Egyptian Red Crescent. Uh, I have to wonder, do you have any plans for either you personally or for other senior officials from Chaos Relief to visit Gaza in person to show your support or oversee the important distribution of aid there? By all means, uh, if the security situation uh, allows, certainly, uh, uh, myself or my uh, uh, team will be more than happy to uh, go in Gaza, ensure that those people who are in dire need will receive the aid. We want to see also that the distribution is, is appropriate. And uh, by the way, Kate, we were in a, a virtual meeting, actually multiple meetings with the Palestine Red Crescent uh, and also UNRWA to ensure that uh, uh, that there also uh, logistic needs are met and uh, certainly visiting them uh, on the grounds will add value to them and to us. Now, of course, the delivery of this aid is only possible with the funds that you're able to raise. You've had a lot of success in this so far. I believe that the specifically the Gaza aid fundraising campaign that's taken place on the, the Chaos Relief affiliated Sahem platform, that has exceeded $143 million. Now, King Salman himself, he made an $8 million donation. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he donated $5.3 million during the campaign's launch. Incredible figures. How, how would you compare that amount with previous fundraising drives that you've undertaken, uh, particularly uh, given that some cynics in Israeli media, they've always said the Arab world doesn't really care about Gaza. Do you feel like you're proving them wrong here? Well, Kate, I think uh, nobody can uh, deny the evidence and the numbers. And uh, uh, I think the Saham platform has, is, is seen by the world the response of uh, the Saudi government and our leaders are very clear. Uh, the custodian of the two holy mosques, Crown Prince, started this campaign and the people of Saudi Arabia have followed. You are right that we have exceeded 140 million US dollars, but we haven't stopped yet. The platform changing on the hour. And I'm sure uh, if we look at it on, on a daily basis, we'll see that this uh, fundraising uh, platform is, is changing. And we thank those who are, have uh, participated. By the way, this is one of the largest and the quickest fundraising campaigns that we have ever done. Uh, not only the number, of, uh, the, the amount, but also the number of people who have participated. We have exceeded uh, 1 million donors, which is a big number when you have uh, a fundraising to have 1 million donors. That reflects the response of the people and their passion about the uh, civilian situation and the humanitarian situation in, in Gaza. Uh, I'm sure those numbers will increase tremendously in the coming uh, 
uh, days and weeks. But the most important is not the numbers. The most important that we want to see uh, also those uh, numbers reflect on the ground. Uh, let me also bring something which is not clear on the Saham platform. We have also from the businessmen of Saudi Arabia in-kind donations. Uh, our, our businessmen has donated ambulances, uh, medical equipment, uh, food supplies, and nutrition, and, and, and formula for children. These are not reflected on the platform. So we're talking about a lot of donations, but let's plea and let's ask that we should open those corridors as much as we can and not rely only on Rafah corridor, but we have to see also uh, other corridors are open and we reach those who are in need in, in Gaza. And let's all uh, plea for saving the lives of children, women and elderly people so that the time is very precious and very important. So clearly incredible donations financially as well as things like uh, medical supplies, ambulances you mentioned there. But the big issue is that the safety on the ground for the delivery of this aid is not guaranteed. It feels like the war in Gaza has been marked perhaps more than any other conflict in, in recent history. Then with these deliberate attacks on hospitals, aid convoys, medical teams as well, how would you describe such attacks? And have you received any guarantees about your own personnel and equipment? Well, Kate, I am a humanitarian and also I am a doctor who still practice and try to save the lives of children uh, on daily basis. So it is for me uh, pain to see anybody uh, attacks and deliberately actually kills aid workers or, or health workers or uh, attacks hospitals uh, or even mosques, uh, churches, and you name it. Those acts are actually uh, against all rules that we know of, against the international humanitarian law, against also the uh, principles of, of human beings. And we hope that uh, those attacks will stop immediately and no civilian or health worker uh, or humanitarian worker is is uh, is uh, attacked or targeted. Saying that, uh, certainly we are worried about our staff. We are concerned, uh, and we if if safety is guaranteed, Kate, you will see not only KS relief staff are in Gaza, but we are ready to send health worker volunteers who have already registered. Uh, in, in the platform for volunteers in, at KS Relief, willing to go and, and put uh, convoy volunteer camps to save lives of those who are in need, especially women and children. So clearly these health workers cannot be sent because you can't guarantee their safety. And we're also seeing your work impacted in other ways. Besides the Gaza emergency aid, we know that 112 development projects are currently being implemented by KS Relief at a total cost of $369 million. But I have to wonder, are they at risk because of the war in Gaza? How many of them are in the West Bank currently? Well, uh, some of them are in Gaza, some of them are in the West Bank. Uh, I'm sure those who are in Gaza, we have to do the assessment and to, to know what happened to them. But certainly they, ha they must have been uh, uh, damaged by, by one way or the other. 
uh, in the West Bank, we have also our our uh, developmental projects, uh, including health facilities and schools and others. All of those, I'm sure, they are at risk. And uh, the, this is actually is is painful for us and for the donors who have donated uh, the money, whether it's government or or also uh, businessmen or uh, lay people. It's very important that facilities which provide services for the civilians should always be protected. What is happening in Gaza is beyond even imagination, what, what we see in Gaza. Uh, I was talking actually to the commissioner of UNRWA, and he himself, he lost over 120 staff from UNRWA and he has lost schools and he has lost facilities that we have donated ourselves. We have supported UNRWA for years. We are one of the top donors for UNRWA. And if he loses the uh, facilities, we have lost what we have built for years in Gaza or in the West Bank. So does the conflict in Gaza take away any resources from your other commitments in places like Yemen, Sudan or elsewhere? Well. Uh, no, we have actually uh, offices in those uh, countries. For example, we have three offices in Yemen. We have our staff on the ground. We have also our staff in Sudan, and we have our staff in, in Somalia, and you name it, and we have staff in, in, in Jordan for the Syrian refugees. So we, we did not actually stop. Maybe the media attention has changed, but uh, on the ground, I can assure you and assure everybody that we, will, we are continuing uh, to, to provide the aid and the developmental work that we are doing. We do not want to see that uh, one uh, crisis will actually affect the other crisis because uh, loss of life or delay uh, of the humanitarian uh, supply is something that is uh, not the practice of, of case relief. And the work you're doing in Gaza is clearly making a huge impact, but that's not all. You've spent more than $6 billion around the world over the past eight years, places like Yemen and Sudan. And it's really positioned Saudi Arabia as one of the world's most generous and fastest humanitarian responders. Yet for some critics, uh, I feel like the kingdom can never do enough. But, but if we put things in perspective, how does Saudi actually rank among world countries in terms of the aid work that it carries out? Well, you have said it, Kate, we are uh, always on the top uh, three top donors. And if you look at the OECD DAC uh, last year, we are the top developmental donor globally. If we reflect this based on GPD, we will always be number one uh, in the last actually decade or more. So Saudi Arabia uh, is, is actually one of the top uh, funder and donor when it comes to both humanitarian and developmental aid. And anybody who questions this should look at the UN actually uh, FTS platform, OECD platform, or actually uh, IAT platform. Those are not our platform. Those are the UN and the international uh, organization that actually document aid and the answer will be seen by those platforms.
clearly making an incredible impact around the world. But Dr. Rabia, just before we go, I, I want to ask you a little bit something off topic. Uh, before doing this job, of course, you were a health minister, but I was very interested to discover that prior to that, you made quite a name for yourself as one of the most prominent and successful surgeons specialising in the very delicate operations of separating conjoined twins. What can you tell us about your personal success rate in these highly complicated surgeries? Would it be fair to say that the kingdom is now the world's top destination for these kinds of operations? Well, Kate, uh, thank you for raising this point. Uh, this uh, program, which is a national program supported by the custodian of the two holy mosques and crown prince, started in 1990. And by the way, it is still going till today. I, I have another surgery with my uh, great team to be done uh, in, in a few weeks uh, from Nigeria. This pro, uh, project program, which is called the Saudi uh, National uh, Program for Conjoint Twin Separation, is one of the largest uh, in terms of, of volume and also one of the highest in terms of success rate. Uh, as of today, we have actually evaluated over 134 sets of conjoined twins and separated, including the one coming in, in a few weeks, which will, which will mark number 60 set of conjoined twins uh, from 24 countries with a success rate approaching 100% uh, when we talk about surgical success rate. And this is actually, as far as I know, is the highest globally. Uh, since you mentioned it, Kate, let me tell you a painful story. In 2018, I separated uh, uh, parasitic twins from uh, Gaza Strip, uh, Hanin, uh, who has another uh, incomplete set of twins, which has been separated with a long surgery. And we brought a spine on the face of the parents of those uh, twins. And we managed to take the twins back to Gaza in 2018. Now, I am not sure as of today whether Hanin is alive, whether her parents are alive, or all of this work that has been done by Saudi Arabia has been lost. It's painful for me until I secure that Hanin and her parents are alive. Well, let's hope that you do hear from her. I have to say 134 uh, twins is just an incredible number. What a massive uh, you know, success for, for not only you and I think Saudi Arabia, but certainly uh, you know, for 24 countries you mentioned around the world, changing lives, that is uh, indeed for sure. Dr. Rabia, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing the details with us of your important work in Gaza. We wish you the best of luck in carrying out this urgent aid operations on behalf of KS Relief. Thank you for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. Thank you. Thank you, Kate.